Hello and welcome to Grow Up Summer School, an APG Canada podcast where we give strategic thinkers and creative tinkers opportunities to grow. I'm your host, Michelle Lee, and this week on the show, we are launching our Masterclass series. Every day this week, we'll be dropping one new episode each day to give you even more opportunities to grow from some of our industry's most renowned planners. Today on the show, we're catching up with Paul Feldwick, author of The Anatomy of Humbug and Why Does the Peddler Sing? on how to make your brand famous. Just before we dive in, we'd like to give a special shout out to the team at Forsman Bodenfor for sponsoring today's episode. As one of Canada's leading supporters of strategic planning, they've shown a keen interest in continuing to help us foster and strengthen Canada's strategic talent. And for that, we thank you. Now let's dive into the show. My background is in advertising. I joined uh, an agency in London called Bose Massimi Pollitt. Um, back in 1974, and it was a great agency to be in in those days. And at that time and for the next 20 years or so, it was uh, famous for making campaigns which were not just effective, but also very popular with the public. Um, We aimed to do advertising that people actually enjoyed seeing rather than advertising that they would try at all costs to avoid. And I think to some extent we succeeded. So I think that's informed a lot of the way I think about advertising. Um, I stayed with the agency for 30 years, did a lot of different things, um, eventually left the agency and uh, sort of just worked as a consultant and um, recently found time to, to write some books about my thoughts about advertising. And I think Why Does the Peddler Sing, which is the latest book, is really very much informed by my early experiences at BMP, um, as we called it. Um, This idea that advertising can and indeed should be entertaining. And that is a thought that to me is not unusual. But I'm aware that for many people, it is perhaps unusual. And to some people, um, it may even sound somewhat heretical, because everything that we're usually taught about advertising and have been taught over the last 120 years or so is very much along the lines of advertising should not be entertaining. It should be transmitting a sales message. It should be telling you why the product is better and it shouldn't be, you know, fooling about. It's a serious business. David Ogilvy said, selling is a serious business. Do not sing your sales message. Claude Hopkins said, Um, You know, people do not patronize a clown, avoid all frivolity in your advertising. Even more recently, Sergio Zyman said, you know, advertising that only entertains does not work. I never believed any of that. I mean, there are circumstances where that is more right than wrong, but there are many circumstances where I think it's completely wrong. And it seemed to me that had never been sufficiently acknowledged And it had certainly never really been explained. Why should this be true? Why should, uh, you know, cartoons, um, song and dance, humor, uh, romance, uh, drama, all all the tricks of the trade of entertainment, why should those actually be effective in changing people's purchasing behavior, changing what they choose to buy when when, when they're making a point, a, a purchase? And I think um, in recent years, we've had a much more solid 
psychological basis for this, and most particularly uh, put about by Byron Sharp and his colleagues at the Ehrenberg Bass Institute in uh, the very, very influential book, How Brands Grow, um, where they put forward a theory of advertising, which at first sounds sort of shockingly simple, but when you think about it, it's perhaps not that simple after all. They say that all that advertising really does is it increases mental availability. In other words, it makes you more likely to think of one brand rather than another brand, first of all, in as many different situations as possible. Um, that sounds terribly simple. Uh, in fact, it's not that simple. Um, they call that mental availability. I have translated that concept into the idea of fame, um, which again is something that historically we've not talked about that much in advertising, although that seems odd because it does seem to me it has a great deal to do with it. Um, things, brands that are successful are brands that are famous. Those two things go together. They are, they are, it's a numbers game. The more people think of you, the more people um, like you, the more likely they are to choose your product. And fame and liking also go together. We tend to like things that are famous. We're interested in things that are famous. We know that other people are interested in them. Um, there's a kind of social proof in the fact that they're famous. They're also familiar to us. They're a common currency that we can share with other people. And we value them because they seem to be widely desirable and because they are familiar. All of those things go together. So in Why Does the Peddler Sing?, I tried to sort of explore those two themes. One is, what is the relationship between advertising and entertainment? Why is it important in advertising? And what has that got to do with fame? And I think I've, I've tried to sort of tie those thoughts together. And uh, if you want to hear the whole argument, I would be delighted, of course, if you would get hold of a copy of the book, which is also available in eBooks and as an audio book read by myself. Um, and you can you can follow the whole argument. But for the purposes of this, this chat today, um, you've just asked me to talk about five tips for making a brand famous. And that's a bit of background to, to where my five tips come from. Um, and there are, conveniently enough, there are five tips. Um, because in the book, I do spell out what I've called four facets for creating fame. And then I add one sort of general thought to that, which which very neatly makes five. So that's what I'll I'll talk about a little bit um, in a moment in terms of, you know, this works. Let me just say where these five tips come from. I mean, they may sound rather obvious, and indeed they may be rather obvious, but I think they're still worth saying because certainly in, in an advertising and a branding context, I think people don't often enough recognize the importance of them. And I arrived at them not just by looking at what makes brands successful, but very much looking at analogies with what makes celebrities successful and what makes, uh, you know, records or films uh, or, or even computer games or, or any, any artifacts of popular culture, what makes those successful. And I've been very inspired by some, some great books that have been published in recent years, like um, obviously Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point, which is now 20 years old, but a follow-up book to that by Derek Thompson called Hitmakers uh, has been a great inspiration to me, and a book, another book by Anita Elbers called Blockbusters. These are studies of what works in the entertainment industry, 
from what works to make celebrities famous. And I think there are a lot of very powerful analogies between those and brands. And historically, the two things are quite closely linked together. So when I give these five tips, I'm thinking very much in terms of this would apply to how do you make yourself famous as a celebrity? How do you make yourself, how do you make a pop record or a movie into a success or a book or something like that? Or indeed, how do you do it with a brand? There are clearly some differences between those. But I think what they all have in common is that they're all presenting something to the public. They're all putting on some kind of a show. And that's the language that I want to use, the language of show business. And what makes that show into a massive hit rather than just running for three nights, you know, off Broadway, um, I think are, are, are the critical things that we need to be looking at here. And I think that's what, that was, is what works for brands as well as for, for anything else. So a long preamble, although I feel a need to put this into context, let me start in now by giving you my five tips. And the first one, bear with me, this will sound both bland and obvious, but it needs to be said. The first tip is what you present to your audience needs to be sufficiently appealing, sufficiently compelling, sufficiently interesting, any or all of those things. In other words, it has to be attractive. It has to make people want to stay with it. It has to make people ideally want to see or hear it again, possibly to buy into it or own it. And to do that, you know, they just have to enjoy it. Now, very broadly, that is, I know, the $64 million question, how do you do that? There is no silver bullet for doing that. There are, on the other hand, I think some very general truths that are worth saying about what makes something that will be a hit potentially as, as against something that won't be a hit. Uh, one principle, and I've, I've borrowed this uh, from Derek Thompson, um, is that what tends to work so most well in the marketplace is anything that gets the right balance between originality and familiarity, or between novelty and familiarity, if you like. And I think that's worth spelling out because there's a very sort of widely held belief particularly in the advertising business, that it's all about originality. It's all about disruption. It's all about doing something completely different that's never been done before. Actually, that is not really the case. Um, a lot of things that are very successful are only marginally original. Um, and there are many, many cases of this. My friend Mark Earls wrote a great book called Copy, 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 where he gives lots of examples of this. One of them is Elvis Presley who, you know, initially at least didn't write any original songs, um, you know, copied his moves from other performers, copied his style from other performers. He just put them together in a slightly different way. And above all, he just did it better. He just did it so well. What makes something brilliant and compelling is not so much that it's original, but that it's good, frankly. And of course, that's a difficult thing to analyze, it's a difficult thing to measure, it's a difficult thing to pin down, because we are now talking in the realms of aesthetics. But I think aesthetics are important, and it's a word that's not often enough used. So basically, you have to have something that is appealing. As I say, one important dimension to that is 
can you get that balance between familiarity and um, and novelty? Um, other things that tend to go down very well are, you know, the power of story, the power of something that's emotionally involving. Uh, if you think about things like Pixar movies, a part of the appeal of those is the depth of character, the power of the narrative, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so, so that's all part of it. And then there are other important things like. Uh, in, in a way, it's, it's, again, the balance between sort of the expected and the unexpected. What you will find is things that have rhythm and assonance or pattern to them in some, in some ways, those are appealing to us at a deep level, but they're more appealing if the pattern is regular and yet with just a slight break in it that creates enough interest. Um, so, uh, you know, the lyrics of songs, the rhythms of songs, um, the, uh, the episode of a comedy which uses the same characters, uses the same punchlines, and yet also maybe puts them in a slightly different situation. Um, these, these are all parts of, of what make things appealing. So I say, there is no formula for what makes something appealing. You've just got to get it right. Um, and I think we should also be aware of the fact that the answer to that is simply about shock, novelty, uh, disruption uh, and and all those things, which are, I think, very much too exaggerated in the ad business. So that's that's my first tip. Michelle, do you want to say anything at this point? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as as you were talking um, and as you were mentioning, kind of different books um, that had inspired this, it, it actually made me think of. I'm, I'm sure you know uh, Orlando Wood, who wrote Lemon uh, from System One Research, and they've done a lot of work. I, I think their framework is really interesting. The whole fame, feeling, and fluency, and obviously fame and fluency. You you've spoken about uh, just then. Um, but, uh, it, it, it's nice, uh, you know, how there, there are threads of this that are kind of inspiring, uh, each of us, um, and, uh, how we can then apply these back to, to models that we create. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, of course, Orlando, as you probably won't be surprised to learn is, is a good friend of mine. Mm. And, um, to some extent, our, our thinking on all this has evolved in parallel. Um, mm. I wouldn't say we we think exactly the same, but we think in pretty similar ways. And I, I hope that I've certainly learned a lot from him and I hope he's maybe taken some, some ideas from me as well. And I think what Orlando does very well and very analytically is, again, he looks at not just ads, but he also looks at, you know, examples from the world of entertainment, like the Looney Tunes cartoons, for example. And he says, what is it that makes these good? What is it that makes these popular? And rather than just sort of saying, oh, that's great, or that's rubbish, which is too often the, the level of uh, conversation um, that, that one hears in advertising, he actually attempts to say, this is good because. And, and I think we can learn by that. Obviously, there is a point at which you can't put these things into words. It is sort of ineffable, if you like. But there are many things that you also can say. And very often it's, it's at a very simple level of simply looking at what's in front of you and saying, you know, what we have got here is characters who are interacting, characters who are looking at each other, ca characters who are engaging in dialogue, characters who are using a particular, uh, you know, individual way of speaking. All these things, as Orlando shows, you know, create interest, create uh, emotional response. And all that, I think, it, it adds up to this 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 point that I'm making that 
you know, that is what the public will find appealing. But let me move on, because it's not just enough to create the great thing, whether it's an ad or a record or a character or whatever. Um, it also has to reach an audience. And again, this sounds obvious, but it's often sort of underestimated or slightly misunderstood. Um, Derek Thompson has a great example of the, uh, the, the early rock and roll record, Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and his comments, which is, I think, something like the second, the second best-selling track of all time. And what I didn't realize about this until I read the story is that it was originally issued in 1955 as a B-side, and the record was a very moderate success, shall we say, and would, I think, have sunk without trace. It would be known today to a few, you know, uh, early rock and roll buffs, if, if anybody. Um, but what then happened was quite by chance, it got picked up and used as the opening title for a movie that was rather notorious in, in 1956 called The Blackbird, Blackboard Jungle. And it absolutely, you know, became a sort of success to scandal. Um, all the teenagers, uh, you know, were, were, were sort of getting hold of this record. Um, they were rioting and playing it loud and using it to annoy their parents. And it became absolutely sort of symbolic of that particular moment of teenage revolt. And so, of course, it became hugely famous and it became known to people who weren't even interested in that sort of music. Everybody heard it, whether they liked it or not. The parents heard it. The squares heard it. You know, everybody knew Rock Around the Clock. And so, of course, it sold millions and millions and millions of copies and, and, it, and it became a huge hit, which it has really sort of continued to be to the present day. And I think this is a very simple example of how it's not just enough to create something, no matter how wonderful you think it is or a few people think it is. It actually has to be exposed to a mass audience. Now, there are many ways of doing that. Um, one way, of course, is to pay for that mass audience, which is what advertising classically does. And that is an asset that brands have. If they have the money, you know, you can spend millions of dollars, millions of pounds, and you can make sure that your artifact is put in front of millions of people repeatedly. And if it's any good, then, of course, that will help it become famous. Um, you don't have to pay for it, of course. In the entertainment business, the, the processes are more complex, more subtle. Um, you know, you get it played by the right DJs. Um, you get it put on the right TV channel. You get it scheduled alongside a program that has already got very high ratings. Um, you know, there are, there are all sorts of devices that can be used to make sure it goes to a big audience. Um, but, but, you know, and, and of course, people who work in the entertainment business are well skilled in knowing what those are and, and manipulating them accordingly. Um, the one thing that is very, very unlikely to happen is for anything to sort of genuinely go viral in the sense that you just put it out there and it gets passed from hand to hand and because it's so wonderful, everybody picks it up. I mean, in theory, it can happen. You can probably find an example or two if you look hard enough. But actually, um, 
the examples that people give of things that went viral, uh, it turns out, don't really go viral. You know, something like the Harry Potter books, which were, you know, originally launched in a very small print run. Um, and then, you know, the, the story goes, was just sort of passed word of mouth from book group to book group went around. And so it grew into a phenomenon. That's not really the truth. What actually happened with that and what always happens in these cases almost invariably is that at some point or maybe at more than one point it actually get, then gets picked up by somebody who has a mass audience it gets picked up by the influencer or the celebrity who has uh, you know 10 million followers on social media uh, you know it, or, or it gets put on a tv show that, that reaches, you know, everybody on, on daytime, on breakfast television or something like that. And you find that in almost every case this happens. So um, these are what um, I think Thompson calls mass contamination events, which is, which is rather fun. But when you look at the history of things that become famous, this almost invariably is what happens. So by one means or another, whether it's paid, earned or owned media, whatever you, you've got, um, you know, you you have to reach that mass audience. Or to jump again to somebody like Elon Musk, you know, Elon Musk uses Twitter, of course, and Twitter reaches quite a lot of people. But actually, the real reason for using Twitter, um, if you're Elon Musk, is not that millions of people will see it, but that just about all the journalists will see it. The journalists will then write up anything that is sufficiently provocative or, you know, um, controversial. And Musk is very good at being provocative and controversial. So that gets into the papers. It gets into the mass media. It gets on television. And this is a trick that P.T. Barnum knew well how to employ back in the middle of the 19th century when he was promoting something like the tour of Jenny Lind across the United States. Um, you know, he knew how to create a furore such that all the newspapers would have to cover it. And then, of course, he would get free publicity. He didn't have to go to the newspapers and ask them to do him a favour. He created news events, which the media had no choice but to cover. And that's, that's another way in which you reach these mass audiences. But whether it's paid or whether it's earned or indeed whether it's, whether it's owned, uh, and that can be a case of, say, you know, using your own followers to, to build your own brand like, um, you know, uh, Kylie Jenner, and her and her you know cosmetics um one way or another you've got to get to that mass audience and you've got to keep getting to that mass audience you've got to uh, as thompson says broadcast to go big yeah i mean i find that super interesting because i think that there's definitely um I, it, like the practicality of it there's many more ways i think for you know your traditional creative agency to even work more closely with pr agencies and you know, you see that with the, the likes of, for example, even, you know, Edelman going from a, a, a PR pushing into other uh, swim lanes or areas of, of advertising or marketing. And, you know, your strict advertising agency is also moving more into earned and, and trying to get publicity and PR for the work that they're doing. So I think um, that's definitely something that is, is underutilized. Yeah. And I mean, I think PR is very important. And uh, the history of PR is fascinating. I mean, I wrote in my previous book, The Anatomy of Humbug, I actually write, uh, write quite a bit about PR because I think PR has in many ways been um, often been more sophisticated and more clever 
than advertising has been. Uh, and it, it is understood, I think, more ruthlessly, simply how you how you make things famous, how you dominate the discourse. And in, in some cases, without even being seen to do it at all, which is, which is, of course, very powerful and can in some circumstances be sinister. But, you know, that, that is the technique that works. So let me move on to point number three um, in my five tips. Uh, we've talked about it has to be appealing. It has to reach a mass audience. But I think there's a, th a third one that I'd add to that, and it's especially true for brands, although I think it's it's inevitably going to be true for entertainers and uh, movie franchises and things as well to a very large extent. But it's very true of brands, is that you have to be distinctive. In other words, you have to have some easily recognisable, instantly recognisable characteristics which become strongly associated uniquely with who you are so that people do not mistake you for somebody else. Um, and you think this applies to film stars because they always have distinctive faces for a star. You know, you don't mistake um, one film star for another. You don't mistake one comedian for another. You don't mistake, you know, one, one, one rock band for another if they're really successful. You don't mistake the Rolling Stones from the Beatles. Um, and, and, of course, those examples that I've given... Um, they themselves um, fostered that very consistently, particularly in their early days, by creating, you know, not just the songs, but also visual imagery and things that they did and all sorts of characteristics that were unique to them. You know, the Beatles haircuts, the, um, the, the Rolling Stones, you know, tongue logo and so forth. That they, they use all these tricks of the trade. And these now these are really important in terms of brands, because these are what uh, again to go back to the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, what they call distinctive assets. They're also very similar uh, as a concept to what Orlando Orlando Wood calls uh, fluent devices. In other words, you know things that are very easily and instantly um, deciphered by anyone who comes across them, so they know exactly what it is. So um, these come in many forms. Obviously, it includes logos, it includes slogans, it includes jingles. Um, very powerfully, it often includes characters. Um, you know, I mean, and throughout the history of advertising, these have been very powerfully used from, I mean, one of the very early examples, that two very ex early examples I give in, in the book. Um, there's the, the, the Quaker man for Quaker Oats, who was originally a trademark, who, you know, they, they stuck with very consistently um, and promoted very heavily. Um, and another character called Sonny Jim, who uh, who pr promoted a brand of cereal, who back in 1901 was, was, he was said to be, you know, the best known character in the United States, as, as famous as the president. Um, and those distinctive assets, I think, are incredibly important. Now, again, it sounds like it's a bit of an obvious thing to point out, but it has to be pointed out because for a long time in the world of advertising, there's been a, a very sort of strong belief amongst advertising agencies particularly that distinctive assets of all sorts are, are somehow not cool and therefore they don't do them. And again, it's something that Orlando has, has shown that you know over the years... They have been used less and less. 
and they're not valued, they're not celebrated in the advertising business. Everybody talks about oh, how wonderful Bill Bernbach was. Um, I, very hard to think of any distinctive assets that were created by Bernbach or his agency at the time that he was there. Um, on the other hand, if you look at an agency like Leo Burnett, over the same period, they were creating the Pillsbury Doughboy. Um, they were creating the Jolly Green Giant. They were creating, um, you know, Ronald McDonald. Now, of course, all these things, they're not cool. They're not what creative people nowadays want to do. They're not what's going to win them awards at Cannes. Um, unfortunately, we also know now better than we ever did that they are the sort of thing that work. They're the sort of thing that will appeal to the public and most importantly, that the public will remember and uniquely identify and associate with that particular brand and not confuse with anything else. So the upshot of it is so many ads today, you watch them and you haven't a clue what they're for and they all look pretty much the same. Um, so, you know, unless that tide, until that tide turns, I think we are missing a massive, massive trick in terms of how do you make, how do you make your brand famous? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to your perspective. Um, two thoughts kind of occurred to me when you were uh, chatting about this uh, or introducing this third tip. Um, I have worked on many a nostalgia brand uh, and, you know, they, they talk about wanting to appeal to a younger audience. So who may or may not have any recollection of these older slogans or jingles or characters. Um, and it makes me maybe think of your, your first point about kind of getting that balance right between novelty and familiarity. And it makes me think of, for example, what KFC has done with Colonel Sanders. Um, you know, yeah. is is there an opportunity to retain enough of it, as you say, that it's familiar, but you know, still a little bit uh, different or original? Um, you know, to 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 modernize uh, it a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Very good point. I mean, you have to balance. You have to work both point one and point three together. Um, in terms of distinctive assets, consistency is incredibly important. Um, and yet you have to keep them sufficiently fresh and interesting in the context in which they're used or the way in which they're used so that they don't simply become boring and they don't, they don't simply lose, lose any attraction to people. I mean, KFC would be absolutely barking mad to get rid of Colonel Sanders, um, which is not to say that they might not because other brands have done worse things than that. But, you know, as you say, it's very much down to what are they going to do with Colonel Sanders? How are they going to use him? You know, you at the very least, you sort of you update the picture. Um, I mean, you don't have to use him in a big way, but he has to be there. He has to be identifying who you are. Um, and at the same time, you need to be doing things in your advertising that are fresh, that are interesting, that are entertaining, um, that are appealing to the younger generation, if that's who you want to appeal to. Um, or whatever it is. So, yes, of course, you have to do both. Um, simply being distinctive is not enough in itself, but then simply being appealing is not enough in itself either. Both of those are needed to create fame. Let me move on to point four. Um, and having said things seldom, if ever, really go viral, it sounds like I'm contradicting myself a bit, but I don't think I am, because I think... Real fame happens not just when the audience are being 
passively exposed to something, no matter how appealing it is and how distinctive it is. Real fame happens when they start actively engaging with it. And they can do that in all sorts of ways, but they make it their own. It may be wearing it, um, it may be talking about it, it may be arguing about it, it may be participating in some way. Uh, I mean, you look at the way that fans engage with things like, you know, the Star Wars franchise, um, the, the way that people will go to conventions and, and dress up as the characters, uh, you know, the way people engage with Harry Potter, for example. And I mean, these are great examples of brands. I mean, some of the most powerful brands created in recent decades are in the entertainment business. Um, and those, in some ways, I think, are models for what brands in other categories could be doing more of. So let's, I mean, stay with something like Harry Potter, um, which is not doing things that are entirely original, but it's doing all the things that it, that it can be doing. Um, it gives people an opportunity to participate. Um, you know, uh, people can dress up as those characters. They can now go to a theme park where they can be part of that world. Um, they can go to the the studios where the movies are made, um, you know, they can they can write their own Harry Potter stories to some extent. They can certainly they can play computer games. They can they can get loads of merchandise that has Harry Potter characters on. All these are ways in which people can actively make that brand that identity a part of themselves and engage with it, and that enormously sort of multiplies. That's like the point where the fame becomes turbocharged, if you like, because it's not just you are getting coverage on the media or you're paying for coverage on the media, but you are actually getting millions of people in the population as a whole actively repeating that and embellishing it and playing it back and, and doing that job for you. It's like you, you've started a conflagration and the conflagration is, is now going on. So that notion of audience involvement again it's not new um it's it's another thing that pt barnum was extremely good at again you go back to the jenny lind tour you can find masses of jenny lind merchandise you can find all sorts of stunts that got the public involved like you know he would auction the tickets for each concert so that people would pay hundreds of dollars to be the first person to buy a ticket for the concert which in turn got covered in the in the media and so on. Now, if you put all these four things together, obviously you can, you can begin to see how they're all interdependent. They all support each other. Um, the more audience involvement you have, the more media coverage you will get because there'll be more news stories and therefore the more fame you will get that way. Um, the more people can involve themselves with something, the more they will enjoy it, the more appealing it will become to them. The more famous it becomes, the more appealing it is to them. Um, the more people know about it, the more there is to sort of talk about or argue about. There's nothing wrong in being controversial. Many of the most famous people at the present day and, and famous brands at the present day uh, have, have, have not run away from, indeed, often caught controversy. And again, you know, I, would, I mentioned somebody like, like Elon Musk, for example. Um, without without going further than that. So all these things are intertwined. They all support each other. And uh, 
I think it's on those four bases that we need to think in terms of how do you make a brand famous. Um, you know, it, it, it has to get to a mass audience. It has to be attractive in the way it presents itself. It has to have enough that is distinctive about it that you don't mistake it for anything else. And the more it can actively involve people um, in as many ways as possible, the better. Yeah, I, I, the, the last one uh, I find interesting, you know, you mentioned Mark Earls before um, and his his book, I think, that uh, was prior to Copy, 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 Heard. Yeah. Um, he talks about, uh, or I interpret parts of it at least, it's almost like leveraging people as your channel or as your media or your, your, your medium. Um, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like this, it's, it's this notion of almost, you know, I wrote down 3D brand. It feels a bit like you're surround sounding people uh, with the brand, giving them that, that, that you know, CX experience um, so that they can, you know, to your point, really kind of touch it and personalize it and make it their own. That's right. I mean, there are many ways in which this can happen. There's a there's a British brand called Marmite, um, which is a, a very odd tasting product, which for many years has promoted itself with with what at first seemed a very bold claim, but has now passed into the language, which is Marmite. You either love it or you hate it, and of course they've been able to build lots of um, lots of games and lots of stunts around that. Um, topical ones and, you know, obviously loving, hate it, lends itself to all sorts of things. But I think one demonstration of the power of that is the way it's passed into the language. But um, nowadays, if if there is something that polarizes strong opinions, people in the UK certainly will say, oh, it's a bit Marmite, or he's a bit Marmite. Um, They literally will use that phrase to mean, you know, something that you either love or you hate. Um, so, so that's one way in which it, 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 it can be done. I actually really like that as an example, because I think that uh, a natural brand's uh, default is to try and find fans. But in this particular case, they're not afraid to be polarizing. And actually, they want the people who hate it to raise their hand as well, um, which I think is really brave uh, for a marketer, but at least ignites some sort of, of passion or feeling. That's right. I mean, I think, um, I think controversy is always something you can or nearly always something you can use to your advantage. Um, again, there's a Barnum story in the book, um, it, it, very early Barnum story when he was a very young man and he was an impresario. He was touring with a, a sort of juggler. They came to one town where nobody wanted to see the juggler because there was already a local guy who they thought was really great. So, I mean, Barnum could have been downhearted and said, well, never mind, we'll move on to the next town. What he actually did was... He challenged the local juggler to a to a contest and dressed the whole thing up and of course got uh, got gangs of people cheering for for, for, for either team um, and uh, in public positioned these two guys as being you know daggers drawn out to kill each other and and then when the curtain dropped they'd be shaking each other's hands and laughing at how much money they'd all made out of it um, so you know you can take controversy. And you can think, well, that's that's an opportunity. People are arguing about this. How do we how do we turn this to our advantage? There's generally, I'm, I'm sure, a way of doing it. Yeah. Um, did you say you had a bonus tip for us? I'm sorry. Did you say you had a bonus tip for us, or was it was the it those four? Tip. Well, I guess I mean you've had four, which yeah. is the <laughs> basic ones. I guess that five to 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 make sure that I have delivered five according to the brief 
um, is what I've somewhere called a fame mindset. And I know that sounds a bit woolly, but I think there is a sort of, there's an approach to this, which is probably a bit different from the way that most people approach brand building and advertising, which tends to be very analytical, very sort of logical, you know, it is this, therefore that, and we do this and we don't do that. I think a fame mindset, and my, my last example in a way, I suppose, illustrates it, says that it's about being fast on your feet. It's about being responsive. It's about, you know, it's about responding to whatever happens. So, you know, if you have a setback, see that as, as a possible opportunity. Um, when you look at the history of people who become and remain famous, um, I have a couple of chapters in the book uh, about the Beckhams, for example, who have remained very famous over, over a number of decades. And you think, well, did they become famous by having a sort of plan and sticking to it? Well, only to the extent that they obviously both wanted to be famous and from a very early age, they, they kind of made sure they had the right agents and they took every opportunity that came along. But actually, more importantly is to say, it was opportunistic. And therefore, all sorts of things that perhaps were never intended to even have any effect on building their fame um, turned out to be very important. I mean, the, the episode which many people remember, David Beckham was, was photographed going out for dinner wearing a sarong. And all sorts of things were read into that. Um, and it was on the all over all the newspapers and all these sort of, you know, great debate throughout the public about why is he wearing a sarong, you know, um, isn't it a weird thing to do? Is, is, aren't footballers supposed to be macho? You know, is he gay? Is he trying to, you know, become a fashion icon or whatever? I mean, as far as we can tell, it was it was none of the above. Um, he simply happened to have one for a bit of fun and put it on one evening. Um, but, you know, they, they rolled with that. Um, the Spice Girls were never called Ginger Spice and Sporty Spice and Posh Spice until a journalist happened to invent those names for them. Um, and they could have been offended and said, oh, dear, you know, we don't like those names. Instead, they totally adopted them. Um, it's that sort of mindset where you kind of go, something's come along, we're going to take this opportunity. And the, taking that opportunity and making sure that that opportunity gets talked about, gets covered in the media, all that is actually much, much more important than these thoughts about, is that true to our brand essence or is this on brand or off brand? I think you've got to be much more loose about that because what your brand stands for is something that will build up over time. It will evolve over time. And over time, you know, you can guide the general direction it's evolving into if you really want to set a direction. But actually, what is much more important is to kind of take the opportunities as they come along and to swing from branch to branch. Um, and, and I think that, uh, you know, anyone who becomes and maintains fame over time um, shows that they can, they can do that. And I mean, I'm not just talking about celebrities, because one of the brands that I, I talk about at some length in the book is Coca-Cola, which, of course, is in many ways the, the archetype of the, the long-standing consumer brand. 
uh, and so many of the things that made Coca-Cola famous and kept it famous were, you know, they were improvisatory or, or responding to circumstances. Um, and, and, and so gradually, step by step, it builds and builds and builds over time. It's, it's never done by a single gesture. It's never done by a single sort of analytical plan in advance that says this is the brand essence. It is much more a case of saying, what's going to keep us in touch with the public? What's going to appeal to the public right now? And if you can keep on doing that, you know, you're going to stay famous. Yeah, I mean, it uh, reminds me of, you know, a number of brands, obviously, now who are trying to kind of more seamlessly weave their way into culture by keeping abreast of what's happening on, on social media and responding, you know, to a tweet or whatever it may be um, in, a, in a smart and clever and, and insightful way. Because I think uh, the potential, uh, I mean, there's some bravery involved in that because the potential, you know, backlash, you know, that, that I've heard lately, for example, even with Pride Month is, well, everyone's just, you know, turning their logo into a rainbow or whatever. So how, mm. how do you, how do you continue to make that um, authentic and credible as well? Yeah. I mean, not, um, not everything, not everyone is in a position to respond credibly to the opportunity. That's the other thing. Um, you know, I mean, a, parallel case in some ways is uh, in the start of the second when the US came into the Second World War and the, the then chief executive of Coca-Cola made this offer that you know he wanted Coke, a bottle of Coke to be available anywhere in the world for five cents to any American serviceman. Didn't know how he was going to deliver it. But a huge, a huge promise. But you know, I guess a lot of people at that time were probably trying to associate themselves with patriotism to try and wrap themselves in the flag. Probably couldn't do do it or, or couldn't, you know, believe it. Um, but but Coke could because it was already so associated with America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, well... Uh, thank you so much for sharing these five tips with us. Um, you know, there, it, it's it's nice to uh, have this uh, summation of your book and, and we uh, can go out and get a copy and deep dive into them further. Um, but just to make sure that I've captured, captured them all. So it's um, about the first tip was about being, being appealing in terms of making your brand famous. Yep. Uh, the second one was about reaching an audience. Yep. Um, yep. The third was about being distinctive. Yep. The fourth tip was about active engagement, and we yep. thank you for the the final tip, um, which was having that that fame mindset, which um, I, I love because it kind of gives you a, a filter perspective for looking at uh, different opportunities. Um, you know, the, the the thing that it finally reminds me of, you know, mentioned KFC earlier, but when they ran out of chicken um, yep. and and yep. turned uh, you know their 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 logo into uh, a fuck um, FCK, uh, you know that uh, is is something that I think is seared in a lot of people's memories. A good example, a good example. Yes, you know, uh, turned turned a problem into an opportunity. Super. Well, thanks Great. very much, Thank Michelle. You. All right. Talk to you later. Enjoy the rest of the day. You too. Goodbye now. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Grow Up. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share this episode, and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts.